So chapter 42. When Jacob heard that there was a grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you looking at each other? He said, go, look here, there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy grain so that we may live. Now remember, all, most, all of his sons are pretty much in their 40s and 50s and maybe 30s and 20s. But there are, most of them, by far, except for probably Benjamin, are grown up. I mean, Joseph was 17 before he was sold into slavery. So they're all grown up. They have families of their own. But knows how Jacob is still functioning as a patriarch. And we did not see that within the others. By the time we moved on to the son or the sons, the father Abraham or Isaac has passed on or ceased to exercise authority. But now we've got 11 sons who have families of their own, and there's no sense of them taking control. It's still Jacob as the head. And he basically looks at him and says, why aren't you doing something? Now, there's an implication that he wants them to do something and have authority, but he gives them a command and they obey without hesitation. So he sends only 10 because he has put Benjamin in probably the most tight bubble wrap that you can imagine to protect him from anything that could possibly ever go wrong after Joseph. And we get that sense when they come back and they say, we need to bring Benjamin. He says, no, 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 no. You can take anybody except for Benjamin. So he sends 10 of his sons with money to buy grain down to Egypt. So they went down in verse 6 of chapter 42. Now Joseph was a ruler of the country and the one who sold grain to all the people of the country. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. And when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger to them and spoke to them harshly. He asked, where do you come from? And they answered from the land of Canaan to buy grain for food. Now notice the specific, notice how there's no actions here. That we don't give the action of their traveling, we don't get the actions of all these things, but the one action that we are told about is they bow down before him to fulfill the dream. The dream is fulfilled. What they mocked and what they derided is now coming true and they don't even realize it. Now, notice that Joseph recognizes them, but he doesn't tell them who he is. And the question is, why? And that's going to be revealed as we keep going. Now, I know in some sense you're like, okay, it's only been 13 years. How in the world do they not recognize their own brother? It wasn't like he was two and 13 years later. I mean, he was 17, which means he's pretty much looking like what he's going to look like most of his life. How do they not recognize him? Well, simple. One... He looks like an Egyptian now. Okay, he's been shaved. They are wearing long robes. They are dark-skinned. They have full beards. He's shaved, probably eye makeup, because they would do this eye makeup around their eye, and then they would draw these like little things off to look like the eye of Ra, the eye of Horus. And then he's wearing probably some kind of a wig. And he's looking a lot different in a costume. Two, they don't ever think in a million years that they expect him to be standing there on a podium with great power. They're probably thinking he's a slave in some pit somewhere at best, and at worst, he's probably died from slavery or whatever. And so the other thing is they're not allowed to look at him. They would be bowing down, and when they do talk, they would be looking down, and they would not be making eye contact with him, which would be incredible 
incredibly offensive. And there's no way they're going to get their grain after doing that. So they're not looking at him, which is right there. That just covers it all up. They don't recognize his voice because we're told later that he speaks through an interpreter. He understands everything they're saying because he knows Hebrew. But he talks to them through an interpreter, so he's probably whispering because he's also, they're not allowed to hear his voice. So he would speak to the interpreter quietly, and the interpreter would announce it back out and speak it back. So there's no way they have any reason to recognize him, any attempt to recognize him. And so he begins to speak harshly. And the first thing he accuses him of is, notice that then it says he recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered his dreams, that he had dreamed about them. And he said to them, you are spies from the land of Canaan. You've come to spy out our weaknesses in the land. We are in the middle of a famine. We are vulnerable. You're trying to find even more vulnerabilities. You're going to attack us for our grain. You're spies. And they deny it. And he keeps accusing him, and he keeps pressing him over and over and over again, which is a tactic. The more you ask the same question or accuse him over and over again, the more frustrated they get, and the more likely they are to break and then slip and say something that they aren't supposed to say. That's even a tactic still used today in interrogations, to just pound on you so hard and so intensely without giving up that you get just so flabbergasted that you just start saying the wrong things. And so he's doing that. Now, he knows that they're not spies, but he still needs to play the part. But he does want to break them. He does want to break them. And so he's speaking harshly to them, accusing them. They keep denying it, and they keep saying, no, we're like, we're all brothers, and we come from the land, and they go on and on and on and on. Now, notice that after a while, they start telling everything about their family, Okay, they start telling how many brothers there are. There was 12 of us, but now we're no more with the 12th. And the other one's at home with dad, and dad loves him lots. And we came to buy grain and all this kind of stuff. And one of the reasons is, is they're trying to give a backstory to why they're not spies and trying to explain that. Now, the reason that they keep emphasizing brothers and over and over again, because you're like, come on, who cares if you're 10 brothers? That doesn't prove that you're not spies. <laughs> lots of spies have brothers. But the reality is, there's no way that 10 brothers would go on the same mission together. Because if they all died on that mission, that would be a huge risk to the inheritance of the family. Now, we don't think inheritance as much today as they did back then. But even today, you wouldn't want to put all your sons on the same platoon in some kind of World War II battle. Because there's a great risk that they're all going to die at once than if they were spread out through multiple um, regiments. And so they're trying to emphasize this would be dumb spies if we all came together as 10 brothers. And so Joseph keeps pressing them. And then he says, I'm going to throw you all in prison. All 10 of you need to go in prison. And so he throws them all in prison. For three days, they stay in prison and they attempt to break them. And so he puts them in prison and then he brings them out. Now notice what begins to happen. They immediately start saying, this is happening to us because of what we did to Joseph all those years ago. You're like, what? That's not logical. Who thinks that when something bad happens to them, it's because of something bad that they've done 13 years ago? Unless... 
you have an incredibly guilty conscience that has been haunting you year after year after year. And the fact that they immediately make a connection to Joseph's death or slavery to what's happening to them now 13 years makes you wonder how many times have they thought that every time something bad happens to them last 13 years. And it's at this moment that you begin to realize these brothers are not as calloused as what we thought they were. Or they were, but their hearts are softening. And their old age, maybe as if they've gained their own sons, maybe Judah now losing his two oldest sons, they start experiencing more life and more loss, and they start realizing what they did was really horrible. And the guilt is so heavy, the yoke, the burden, is so heavy on their shoulders. And I don't think every time something bad happened, like they chip a nail or something like that, but something huge, something worthy of being punished for selling your brother into slavery, it constantly comes back to their memory. And there's that guilt. And this is what God meant by your burden. My burden is light and my yoke is easy. What he means is, is you won't constantly be looking over your shoulder all the time, wondering when you're going to get caught or punished for something that you've done because you've done something wrong. If you follow me, Christianity is difficult. You will be persecuted. But there won't be that guilt and that burden that keeps you from truly being free in the way that you interact with God and the way you interact with people because you're constantly wondering when you're going to get caught or when you're going to get punished or the baggage that you're carrying with yourself. And that's what we have, is a very heavy yoke on their shoulders because they chose to follow their own hearts. And when Joseph hears this, he begins to weep. He begins to weep because he sees their heart. And he sees that when he was crying out and they turned a deaf ear, really, they're now being haunted by his cries. And his love for them and his own forgiveness is allowing him to feel compassion for them. You know how incredible that is. I mean, we know we do in some ways, but once again, this isn't just a Sunday school story. This is ten brothers who literally grabbed you, threw you into a pit, wanting to kill you and decided to sell you because they can make more money off of selling you than killing you. And you have the ability to weep for their pain, for their yoke, for their burden. That's true forgiveness. See, forgiveness is not saying, I forgive you. Forgiveness is not even saying, I'm not going to exact my pound of flesh from you. See, forgiveness starts with, I forgive you. But forgiveness moves deeper into saying, I'm not going to exact a pound of flesh from you to pay back for what you took from me. But true forgiveness is the ability for them to walk in the room and your fence does not clench. You don't get heated. You're not capable of looking at them. You have to look away or you'll feel, the, feel this bitterness. It's to be able to stand in their presence and see the pain in their life, and actually weep for them, and actually want to restore them. That's true forgiveness. Look, lots of people are capable of forgiveness. 
Lots of people are capable of forgiveness, of not wanting to punish somebody. But really, I truly believe that only through the work of the Holy Spirit can you come to the point of forgiveness where you literally can go up to them and become friends with them and hang out with them and invest yourself into them to make their lives better. Lots of people are capable of saying, I'm not going to get vengeance. I'm not going to hold it against you. You go on with your life. I'll go with on my life, and I won't think about it anymore, and I'll let it go. But can they truly stand side by side with that person and weep for their pain and actually become a tool of redemption in their own life? And that is what you're going to see with Joseph. And that's true forgiveness through the work of God. He decides to mess with them even more. Now, remember, messing with them sounds like he hasn't forgiven them. But at the same time, just a few weeks later, he's like doing things that only a person who's truly forgiven them is capable of doing. So what's he doing? So he says, okay, I'm going to keep one of you here as a prisoner. And he picks Simeon. Now, Simeon is the second born. Perhaps he didn't pick Reuben because as he's heard them talk, he realizes that Reuben did not, wasn't part of the plotting. And so he spares Reuben for the sake of actually the fact that Reuben tried to save him, even though it was for selfish motives and he did a pathetic job. Or maybe he spares Reuben and only picks Simeon because, I don't know, maybe he thinks nobody will come back for Reuben. So um, they're more likely to come back for Simeon. You don't take a knockoff Rolex, Rolex as collateral. You take a real Rolex as collateral. So for whatever reason, he picks Simeon, the secondborn. And he says, you need to come back. And if you want to come back and get Simeon, you have to come back with this younger brother, Benjamin, you've talked about. Go. You have to think about this. That's not logical. If you were an American spy in Nazi Germany in World War II, and you're caught by Hitler himself. And Hitler says, you're a spy. And you're like, no, I'm not. I've got 10 brothers, 11 brothers. The 11th one is back at home. And Hitler says to you, if you go get that brother and bring him back, I'll believe you. You know how not logical that is? You're probably being stupid. I could go find anybody and pay them to be my brother or get another spy, and he'll pretend to be my brother, just like we're all pretending. Like, that's not logical. That doesn't prove anything. Now, you're not going to tell Hitler that because you think, oh my gosh, we're going to totally get out of this. And if you're emotional, wondering if you're going to survive at the hand of the second most powerful person in the world who's just accusing you of spies and imprisoning you for three days and keeping one of you, you're probably not going to stand up against him and say that's not logical. And you're probably maybe not even thinking about the illogicalness of it all because you're so emotional right now. Joseph isn't trying to prove that they're not spies because he knows they're not spies. What he wants is to see his only biological brother, full-blooded biological brother. But the last time he saw him was probably two years old. And that's what he's interested in. And so he gives them a reason to come back. And he wants to do something more. So he sends them back, keeping Simeon, who he's thrown in prison. But on their way back... He puts all their money back in the grain. And when the first guy on the way back, because it would be like a week travel to get back, he opens up his grain to feed the animals on this journey, and he's horrified. I mean, you're like Twilight Zone now. 
You've been accused of spies. Your brother's been taken prisoner. You've got to go get the other one that you know your father's never going to let go. And then now your money's in your grave. It doesn't get any worse than that. Now you're thieves. And you don't understand how you're spies, and you don't understand how you're thieves. You just are now. And they're freaking out. What is Joseph doing? He's testing them. He's putting them under pressure to test them. Now, that will become clear as we move on. So they get back at the end of chapter 42 to the land of Canaan, and they tell their dad everything. And when they open up each sack of grain and find money in each one, it says that Jacob and all their brothers begin to tremble in fear because they know what that means. But notice what Jacob says. I'm not sending you Benjamin. Now, think about that. Remember, Jacob is a changed man. He's starting to act more and more like Israel and not Jacob. He's growing in God, but he's still got a long way to go. Because what he's saying is, I don't care about Simeon being in prison. I'm not letting Benjamin go. I will sacrifice Simeon's life to keep protecting Benjamin in my bubble wrap. And that's what he says to them. Now, notice what Reuben says. Reuben says, I will take responsibility for Benjamin, and I will protect him. Send him to Egypt with me, and I'll make sure nothing bad happens to him. But if something bad happens to him, you can kill my sons. What kind of father says that? I mean, yeah, I can see him saying, I'll take responsibility. You can hold me accountable. You can imprison me and kill me, but you'll kill my sons? What kind of father says that? And so once again, we see Reuben as like, what, what is going through your head half the time? What is really going through your head? He's like a second Esau. And just this not thinking, living in the moment, overly dramatic, just no filter, say the first thing comes out of my mouth. And he's not really saving anybody. He's not really trying to help. And Jacob refuses until months go by and the grain all runs out. And now they're desperate. And Jacob says, go back to Egypt and get more grain. And the brothers are like, no way. <laughs> Pharaoh made it very, the, the visor made it very clear that we are not to come back without Benjamin or it'll be our lives. I mean, we can starve here or die there. There's no way we're going back. And so they keep convincing and keep arguing with Jacob, and Jacob's mad at them, almost like, why did you tell them I had another son? And they're like, look, Dad, we were desperate. He kept drilling us and pushing us, and, and the only thing that can prove that we're not spies is our family. But Jacob keeps hitting them, and then who stands up the second time? Judah. And Judah says, put him under my command, and if anything bad happens... You can take my life. Notice here is very important because Judah is changing. Judah is starting to take the headship role of the family. Reuben tries, but he's pathetic. Simeon and Levi are just two violent men. They're not capable of leadership. They're too violent. But Judah is the guy who's changing. 
Judah is the guy who's lost two of his sons. Judah is the guy who's seen a Canaanite woman value the Abrahamic promises more than he did, and that really changed him. Judah is the one who, at least in the very beginning, was kind of callously sold his brother into slavery, but still was not willing to kill his own brother, unlike the other brothers. And Judah begins to take leadership roles, and you begin to see a heart that is changing, and you begin to see why chapter 38 with the Tamar story was there, because Judah's starting to become a major character in this story. And he's willing to offer up his own life as a sacrifice, imprisonment or death, in order to protect Benjamin, the favorite son of Jacob. The same favoritism that made him hate Joseph, that made him want to sell Joseph into slavery. And now Benjamin's being favored even more than Joseph ever did, because Benjamin is not just being favored as his favorite son. Benjamin is being favored by a father who favors him more than all the other brothers on top of the fear of losing his favorite son because he's already lost one, which is going to pile even more favoritism on his son. When a parent is afraid of something bad happening to their kids all the time, then they are favored even more. And so if anything, Judah is going to want to hate Benjamin even more than he ever did Joseph, and yet now he's willing to die for Benjamin. Now at the same time, you're kind of like, well, those could just be words. Maybe he's so confident in his ability to go there and get back that he was willing to say anything. But if he's not just saying anything, this is incredible growth. This is incredible growth. So Jacob gives in, knowing that there are no options. It's death or son Benjamin. But there's something in Judah. Now remember, Jacob knows his sons better than anybody. And there's something in Judah in the way he says it makes Jacob say, Okay, I'll entrust you with the life of my most favorite son. But take all the grain, the money that they gave us before. (laughs) Make sure that you give them all that money that we had previously been given back. Take new money to buy more grain. And let's take some gifts to try to appease the visor. Because I'm all about bribing people, just like I was with Esau. (laughs) No, I'm not going to trust God. Bribes work really well. And so he sends them with every hope that he can do whatever he can to save his son. So verse 43, or sorry, chapter 43, verse 15. So the men took these gifts, and they took double the money with them, along with Benjamin. And they hurried down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his servant who was over his household, Bring the men to the house, slaughter an animal, and prepare it for the men and will eat with me at noon. And the man did just as Joseph said, and he brought them in into Joseph's house. Joseph is slaughtering an animal, one of their most revered animals, in order to provide a meal for them. This is a big, big deal. This is like somebody that you don't even know inviting to their house. They don't make a lot of money and they break out like $50 steaks for you and caviar 
and a bottle, not, it doesn't matter whether you like heavy or not, okay, it's expensive, and a bottle of wine that's super expensive, and you know that they work at like a fast food restaurant, you would feel incredibly honored. And that's exactly what Joseph does. Now, granted, Joseph can afford this, but not that he would ever do that for a Semitic dog. Way they're thinking. Because remember, they don't see Joseph as a Semitic, their brother. They see Joseph as an Egyptian. Why in the world would this guy ever do that? And so he is going to prepare a big feast for them. So they're going to eat with him at noon. Verse 18. But the men were afraid when they were brought to Joseph's house. They said, we are being brought in because of the money that we returned in our sacks at last time. He wants to capture us and make us slaves and take our donkeys. So they're even more afraid. We're being brought to his house. Something's really bad. We're going to be enslaved, and he's going to treat us like his jokers. Now, the original purpose of a joker was not to entertain people. The original purpose was taking somebody and enslaving them so that you can humiliate them. Okay, And so that's what they're thinking. We're going to become slaves and become a humiliation to entertain him. They said, my Lord, we did indeed come down the first time and buy food. But when we came to the place where we spent the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found the money, full amount, and the mouth of our sacks. So we returned it and we have brought additional money with us to buy food. And we do not know who put the money in our sacks. So they immediately tell the servant of Joseph, look, 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 look. Don't enslave us. Don't kill us. We got, here's the money. We didn't steal it. Like just, they're desperately just trying to spill all the beans. Everything is fine, the man said, verse 23, in charge of Joseph's household. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you the treasure in your sacks. I had your money, and then he brought Simeon out to them. So he says, don't worry about it. I got your money. I never thought you stole anything. If there's money in your sack, your God must have put it there. Now, notice he, he is not telling the truth. He's probably been instructed by Joseph to say that. Okay, is he messing with them even more? Or is he truly letting them off? Now remember, if this is your first time reading this ever, these are questions that are going through your head. Is he legitimately like, they, he got the money and he doesn't know what they're talking about? Or is he really messing with them? But your God put that there. Now, in some cases, he's right. I mean, in some ways, he's lying because he knows exactly that God didn't put it there. He put it there. But in some cases, he's not lying because God did put it there. God used him because God is putting Joseph where he is to be a blessing to this family who needs to be taken care of in the famine. And he has become the hand of God in this moment. So then he brings Simeon out. That would be an interesting conversation. <laughs> what took you so long? <laughs> it's dad, it's dad, it's dad, I swear. Then the servant in charge, verse 24, brought them in into Joseph's house and he gave them water and they washed their feet. Now, I think we know the Gospels well enough to know that this is incredible honor. You're going to be really confused. You're sitting there, and the servant is washing your feet like you're the most honored guest, like some ambassador from Russia invited to the president's house. 
But at the same time, you're wondering, like, what acid is in the water that's going to eat our feet away? Because this has definitely got to be some kind of conspiracy or prank. What is going on? Then they gave them food to their donkeys. They got their gifts ready for Joseph's arrival at noon, for they had heard that they were to have a meal there. When Joseph came home, they presented him with the gifts. They had brought him inside, and they bowed down to the ground before him, second bowing down, just like two dreams. And he asked them how they were doing. He said, so, how are you doing? Now he's like complete reversal. This guy has multiple personalities, okay? Or he's in his bipolar state, and now he's in the polar, okay? And he asked them, how are you doing? He said, is your aging father doing well, the one that you spoke about? Is he still alive? Your servant, our father, is well, they replied. He is still alive. And they bowed down to him, Humbly. But when Joseph looked up and saw the brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother whom you told me about? And then he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out, for he was overcome by affection for his brother and was on the point of tears. So he went to his room and he wept there. It would be an incredible reunion. Then he washed his face and came out. With composure, he said, set out the food. And they set out a place for him, a separate place for his brothers, another for the Egyptians who were eating with him. And the Egyptians are not able to eat with the Hebrews. This gives you the impression of how the Egyptians view. So Joseph is at one table because he is the most powerful. His Egyptian servants and housemates are at another table, but nobody is sitting with the Semitic dogs over there because they hate They despise eating with these filthy people. Now, he's got to keep up appearance if he's going to keep this testing or ruse going. But when he sits him down, he sits him in birth order. You're you're definitely thinking Twilight Zone here. We were accused of spies. We come back with money that we think we're going to be accused of stealing. We come back and we're told that we didn't steal. We're being asked, like, how's your day? How was the walk in the garden? Okay. And now we're sitting in birth order, and everything's okay. And then he gives Benjamin five times more food than everybody else. It's a lot of food. It's like going to the buffet five times. Because remember, this is a feast. And it's at this point that he then decides to send them home. But the men looked at each other in astonishment, and he gave them portions of food set before them, a portion of Benjamin, and they drank with Joseph until they became drunk. Now, that shouldn't surprise you too much knowing their character, but at the same time, we'd really want to see them changing, maturing, but it also could be that you drink because you don't ever say no to the Pharaoh let alone the second, or the second most powerful person. So you drink because he keeps giving you wine. And you don't do anything to make him angry because you really have no idea what's going on right now. So it could be that they just like getting drunk. And, and it's interesting that alcohol is not as bad as what people make it out to be in the Bible. The Bible doesn't really condemn alcohol like the American church has. Because the Bible also makes it very clear, do not be controlled with alcohol and bad things happen. But there is a sense where, now granted, that's a bigger discussion. 
But all I want to say is don't immediately read into this as horrible character evaluation because I don't think that's the point the author is trying to make. That's a bigger conversation, but don't immediately go towards character assassination on that getting drunk. The idea is that he is really taking care of them and he's really blessing them. 